It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 139, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Dave Chapman got his start at Longwind Farm in 1984 with a team of oxen, a diverse array of vegetables, and a roadside stand in East Thetford, Vermont. Today, he only grows tomatoes, and lots of them. With two and a half acres of greenhouses, Dave and his crew produce certified organic, soil-grown tomatoes all year round. Dave digs into the nuts and bolts of producing tomatoes and protected culture, sharing the details of his high-tech greenhouse system, log winds, farms, fertility management strategies, and how Dave learned to get out of the way of his farm success while managing business and personal goals that were often in conflict with each other. Dave also shares his views on the current state of the National Organic Program, Organic Hydroponics, and the Organic Livestock Rules, and talks about the action being taken to try to change the situation. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. Farmersweb.com. And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSamerica.com And by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And before we get started with the interview, my good friend Carl Hammer from Vermont Compost has a short message about a very important issue facing organic farmers. People, organic farming came to be to affirm reverence for life, not reverence for money. Organic practice respectfully imitates the ancient soil systems from which we humans emerged. Hydroponics is a perversion of the fundamental organic principle of feeding the soil so that the soil may feed the plants. To certify as organic the feeding of liquid nutrients on an inert substrate threatens the integrity of certification and should be vigorously protested. Go to keepthesoilinorganic.org and find a rally near you. Sign the petition. Send testimony to the NOSB. Talk to your friends and neighbors. And ask your produce manager if that pepper is hydroponic. Dave Chapman, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. So glad you could join us here on a, I mean, it's, it's a gorgeous fall day here in Wisconsin. What's the weather like there in, in East Thetford, Vermont? It's also a gorgeous fall day. Finally, it's been, uh, we've had very, very hot weather this week, but right now it's acting like fall again. Beautiful day. I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Long Wind Farm and where you guys are located, what you're doing and how much of it you're doing. Good. We're in uh, Thetford, Vermont. Uh, we're actually literally right on the banks of the Connecticut River. Uh, we have a beautiful location. We're a very small piece of land, maybe, I don't know, six or seven acres. And uh, of that, uh, we actually actively farm two and a half acres. Uh, all of that is is uh, in a glass greenhouse. So it's it's a very intensive two and a half acres. When I first came here, it, I had a team of oxen. That was a long time ago. And uh, we were a field operation. 
Um, I built my first greenhouse that very first winter out of two by fours. Uh, and we had a roadside stand and we did a little bit of wholesale and farmer's market. And actually in the beginning, we were just farmer's market. Uh, and we, things grew, the farm grew and we got up to about uh, five acres of mixed vegetables and cut flowers and bedding plants and a very small greenhouse, greenhouse tomatoes. And then, uh, you know, we were, we were at that point, we had a roadside stand. We were pretty, pretty typical Vermont, uh, farm stand operation. Uh, we were organic from the beginning, from, from day one, we were, uh, I was one of the founders of the Vermont organic farmers, which was the branch of NOFA that first certified organic farms. And that was before the USDA got involved. Um, Things changed when I started getting some kids and I, like everybody else, I worked a lot. I worked, you know, about a 70 hour week and, um, I just, I, I couldn't figure out how to spend any time, uh, with, with my son. <laughs> and I thought about it and just, we started changing the farm and within a few years we had made a transition to being all greenhouse tomatoes and we closed down the roadside stand and we we uh, stopped growing a big diversity of crops and we got really focused i was looking for a, a little bit simpler life where i could have a year-round crew that would stick with us and make things go a little simpler and so now we're we're actually two and a half acres of mostly glass greenhouses and still organic still growing in the soil and we have now a good, really well-established year-round crew. So my life is a lot easier. When you say you've got a year-round crew, are you harvesting tomatoes year-round out of those greenhouses? Yeah, I think, I think this coming year we will for the first time. Up until now, we have harvested until about mid-December and then started again the beginning of March. But we did put uh, some supplementary lights in one of the houses. So that house will be able to pick right through the winter. Two and a half acres of, of greenhouses. You said they're mostly glass greenhouses. When you say that, do you mean actual glass? Yeah, the roof is actual glass. So it's actually two greenhouses. Uh, one's an acre and a third and one is an acre. And then we have a little couple little poly houses, hoop houses. But yeah, the houses are, they're, uh, Kind of kind of stunning structures. They're they're big, tall glass greenhouses, gutter connected, and you know we were growing in poly houses for years before we uh, built our first glass house, and that's a long story. But I went to Europe with Elliot Coleman and Paul Harlow and David Miskell. Uh, the four of us were sent on a fact finding mission for a nonprofit, and we saw these big organic glass greenhouses in Holland. We were pretty impressed. I actually thought they looked like prison. You know, it's a lot of responsibility to have a big structure like that, and they're expensive. And I, I was intimidated, of course, by the debt load, but just the constant uh, upkeep of them. But anyway, we ended up going that way, despite it looking like prison. So. That's that's what we do now. 
And I'm curious, why glass instead of polycarbonate? I mean, when I worked at the University of Wisconsin 30 years ago, 20 years ago, we worked in a glass greenhouse, but most of those have now been taken out and replaced with polycarbonate greenhouses. And why, why go through the extra expense of putting in glass? So uh, everything that I assumed would be true uh, about the, the glass greenhouses, the opposite turned out to be true. So I assumed that they would get higher production than a double sheet of poly, but they don't. And I assumed that they would use more energy, but they don't. They use less energy. So uh, these are very, uh, very fancy glass greenhouses uh, compared to like some of the old ones that you might see, like in a university that have been there for a long time. Uh, these are when we built them, they were state of the art. And uh, the, the underneath the glass, we have a double layer energy curtain that it, it will expand at night when it's cold. And uh, it also doubles as a shade curtain. So on a sunny day, if it's too sunny, it will expand and give us some, some, some relief for the plants. The, the side walls of our new house are triple layer polycarbonate. So it's not that, that we wouldn't use that. Um, but on the roof, the glass is better because you get uh, a lot more light. And um, we looked at the double layer of glass, but that didn't work because the snow wouldn't melt off the roof. Uh, they've experimented with it in Holland. Kind of interesting. And they got good results until it snowed. And then uh, <laughs> the, way they, the way that you melt the snow off the roof in, these, in, these, in a gutter-connected house is you've got a heating pipe in the, in the valley, in the gutter, underneath the gutter. And when it's snowing, you turn that heating pipe on and it, it melts the snow off. But insulated glass, it, it wouldn't melt it. So they haven't quite figured that one out yet. You talked about these, these curtains that expand and, and retract to provide you with insulation when it's cold outside overnight. I mean, you must have a tremendous amount of heat going into these houses to be able to produce. I mean, Vermont's not exactly warm in the wintertime. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say that that's our, our, our great, um, social challenge is our carbon footprint. Uh, economically it works out. Uh, we can, we can afford to, to pay for the energy, to heat the house, to sell the tomatoes. But, uh, socially, I think, you know, environmentally it's a pretty big issue it wasn't perceived as an issue when we started interestingly enough i mean that was a long time ago uh, and i hadn't heard of global warming back then so now i mean we've been working on it for about 10 years uh, our factor four program and when we started our goal was to reduce our energy by 75 percent a factor of four and um we, from when we first started, we've, we've gotten there from when we started measuring 10 years ago, we're about, we've reduced it about 40%. So we got a long way to go, but we're, we're still working on it. Um, that's what the double energy curtains were part of. We have air to air heat exchangers for the same reason. So that, uh, when we need to dehumidify the house, instead of just opening the roof fence, and letting the warm, humid air out and the cool, dry air come in, uh, 
we were on the air through a heat exchanger or a bunch of heat exchangers. And so we get the most of the heat out of the outgoing air transferred to the incoming air, but we get the dry air coming in. In a greenhouse, you know, you've got to, when you have a mature crop, they're pumping a lot of moisture into the air and you've got to dehumidify or it becomes the, the, the Amazon, the swamp. That was true in our greenhouses, even when we were doing just spinach over the wintertime, we found that periodically we just needed to open things up and get all that moist air out of there. Right, right. So the climate is very important in a greenhouse, and, and I've, I've learned a lot about that over the last 25 years, um, creating a climate that the plants will flourish in. You know, we've got to get nutrition right. We've got to get the soil right. We've got to get the irrigation right, but we've got to get the climate right, too. Let's talk about that. I mean, when you say getting the climate right, what all do you do to get the climate right inside of your greenhouse? Well, first of all, an important part of the greenhouse, important tool in the greenhouse is is the climate control computer. So there's instead of having a thermostat, that says now it's time to um, exhaust some air. We have a computer that uh, is sampling a lot of things every every minute. It's sampling the inside air temperature, the inside relative humidity, um, the outside temperature, the outside humidity, uh, the light level, uh, the wind direction, the wind speed. So. It's looking at all this and, and going, hmm, I think maybe we should put a little more heat, heat in one of the heating pipes, or maybe we should open the vent just an inch. And of, of course, how much, how reactive it is changes based on the time of year and the, and the weather. That's what it's really changing based on the outside weather. So for example, in the spring, maybe you have a, a warm, sunny day, but you don't want to ventilate too strongly, too quickly, because even though it's warm and sunny, the air outside is bone dry because the leaves haven't started to pump outside. So the relative humidity is very low. The absolute humidity is very low. So you need to uh, vent very cautiously in that kind of a situation or you will set back the plants. I, I started with roll-up sides on a hoop house, right? Just like everybody else, right? So you don't have that kind of control possible in that situation. Um, what we get with, with a fancy house is fancy control. And another thing the computer does is it gives you records so that you can start to learn from what's happened and see like, oh, we opened the vents too fast and, and the plants all got burned tips of the leaves, and, you know, and then try and understand why that happened. So there are a lot of things that are possible with a fancy house that, that aren't possible with a, with a hoop house that you're rolling up the sides. And when I started, you know, I had a wood stove for heating the greenhouse and I slept in the greenhouse. <laughs> when it got cold, I put wood in the stove. I was the thermostat. Now you talked about some other factors that are important to manipulate as well. Soil being one that I know that is particularly important to you. How are you managing the soil and fertility in a greenhouse that is devoted to tomato production year after year after year and essentially all year long? The very simple answer is that we make a lot of compost and that's, that's, the, that's the basis of it. We are composting animal manures and 
it sort of changes over time based on what's available. We've been trying to source organic manure as much as possible. We we got there 100% last year, but not 100% this year. And I think that for any farmer, uh, the quality of the manure is a big, big issue these days. There's, of course, GMO grain is fed to most most all all conventional production. So that's somewhat of a, a given. And plus, now you get these can get these persistent herbicides coming in through some manure sources that are very problematic. So we're, you know, we're constantly evolving our efforts to make the best compost that we can. And we rely on that because that is our main fertility by far. We'll add a little bit of sulpomag for potassium and we add some organic alfalfa meal as we go along, but that's pretty much it. Uh, pretty much it's our compost blend that we bring in. And we, we bring a lot in. We've got, I don't know, maybe 17% organic matter in our greenhouse in the soil. And we have very good drainage, so we have great aeration, uh, lots of oxygen getting to the roots. So we've actually never had any kind of root disease in the plants. It just hasn't been an issue for us. Even though you're growing the tomatoes in the same soil year after year after year. Yeah, we have changed the soil sometimes. I used to change it every year. (laughs) When you uh, say change the soil, what is that? Dig out out the top five inches and, and, you know, bring in new soil compost. And, uh, you know, I was working on the traditional belief that you should rotate your crop. And the thing was, we couldn't really rotate the crop. We were rotating the soil. And that worked fine. It was fine. Um, a lot of work, needless to say. Uh, I got the idea from uh, an old, one of those old gardening books that the lettuce growers used to do that outside of Boston in, the, in greenhouses. They would go and dig out the soil because they got a buildup of disease in the soil. But we started to experiment with not changing the soil to see what would happen. And we felt that we had a better crop if we didn't. Um, And we felt we had a better crop if we didn't even till. So when we bring in new compost, when we change the crop, we don't, we don't rotovate, rototill it anymore because it, it showed a clear reduction in the quality of the first couple trusses. And so you're just laying the compost on top of the soil then and planting into it, not doing any incorporation at all. None at all. Now you mentioned having really good drainage. Are you doing any tillage at all in the in the greenhouse? Do you guys broad fork the beds or go through with some kind of a subsoiler to loosen things up underneath the plants before you put the compost on? No, no. We have a permanent bed system. Uh, we did we did chisel plow right after we built the greenhouse before we first made the beds. So we went through with a tractor and a chisel and and because it in the process of building it. It, it gets very compacted. But after that, no. Uh, if we see a place where there appears to be an issue, the drainage isn't as good, then we might go through with a brilliant and uh, loosen it or, or even with a long nose spade or something. But no, we don't, we don't walk on the beds at all. I, you know, when I, when I learned to farm, my, my first teacher was Jake Guest, who's a very good organic farmer in Vermont. And I, I was half of Jake's crew the first year he set up. And 
when I went off on my own, I got to know Elliot Coleman, who was just down the road, a couple towns at the mountain school in Berkshire, Vermont. And I spent many hours uh, talking with Elliot and we did lots of experiments on potting mixes and all kinds of fun stuff. But he also was very generous, not only with his, with his mind, but also with his library. And uh, so I got to read a lot of, a lot of great books, many of them very old. One was a book about uh, a woman, what's her name? Dazeel O'Hara, I think was her name. And she developed a system of intensive market gardening that was a no-till system and permanent beds and permanent paths. And this was quite a while ago. And, I, you know, I was intrigued by that and it made sense to me. And that's what we sort of naturally do uh, in the greenhouse anyway. The The beds are, you know, very prescribed the spacing is all sort of decided and you you don't change the bed width or the path width and um and we we work on the paths and the plants live in the beds and that's how it is so the beds are very very filled with life they're teeming with worms and sow bugs and you know all kinds of crawling critters and as well of course there's lots of bacteria and fungi that we can't see but they're there as well. It's a very lively ecosystem. One of the things I noticed in the pictures that I've seen of your greenhouse operation is that it's all on bare soil. No black plastic, no landscape fabric. Right, right, right. No. No, we don't we don't do that. Um I've I'm really thinking a lot about about mulch. One of my farming heroes is Brian O'Hara. Down in Connecticut, I think Brian just does a spectacular job. I don't know if he's been on your show, but he should be if he hasn't. He's a no-till uh, intensive market gardener, and um, he does just great stuff with compost and very innovative. He's just been out there on his own inventing wonderful ways of reducing tillage and making the soil better. And he he does a lot of uh, mulching as well, and he, as I recall, makes a a mixture of uh, a particular wood chip and um, straw. And I know Pete Johnson also mulches his tomatoes with straw, but I think Pete also has soil heat in there. And that might be an important thing if you were going to mulch in a greenhouse because we certainly want the soil to warm up. If you're mulching out in the field, it might be a favor because the it might get hotter than you want, but in the greenhouse, in an organic system, especially, I think you want every every degree you can of soil temperature to keep things lively. So we haven't done that yet, but but we might well. Um, when I was younger, we went up to visit some of the best of the organic growers in Quebec, and Elliot and Davy Miskell and I went up. And very interesting. They were doing all kinds of great stuff. And the the very best two that we saw definitely mulched heavily with straw, but I would still be a little bit concerned about soil temperature, but we're going to experiment with it. And so if you're doing bare soil in the greenhouse, um, you're bringing in compost, you must be introducing some, some weed seeds, some foreign plant material. How are you keeping the weeds under control? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was, talking with a farmer friend of mine um, and I was preparing for a talk I was giving on 
unmanaging, like managing a farm. And uh, the point of the talk was, uh, it was based on the work of a Israeli thinker named Eli Goldrat, Eliyahu Goldrat. And he wrote a book, oh, 30 years ago called The Goal. And uh, 29 years ago, that became one of the Bibles on the farm. Um, because it was a book about how to make decisions for anything. It wasn't even limited to business, but, but it was written as a novel and it took place in a factory. And, uh, but you can use it in your marriage. You can use it in a hospital, uh, in your, in your music club. And it starts out with in any enterprise in any, any activity that you have, there are a million things that one might do to make things better. We know that, and uh, every farmer is like overwhelmed by the number of things that they feel that they should do and they're not doing, and and you can see that that we get worn out because we're running around trying to do them all, and and we can't; they're infinite. So the point of the goal was to figure out first before you decide what to do. What is the goal of of the enterprise? And Ellie has a <laughs> he thought he, I mean, he, he said, well, for any, any publicly held corporation, I'm, I'm skipping about 70 pages of the book, maybe 150 pages, <laughs> you know, and just going to sort of the punchline for any publicly held corporation, the goal is to make money. And I thought, well, I can get behind that. I mean, I'm not a publicly held corporation and we certainly have a lot of things that we won't do to make money, but we would like to figure out how to make money. We were, you know, we're a struggling farm like everybody. How do you, how do you make a living at this? We all know we love the work, but how do we make a living? Um, and so I tried that on and I was never quite comfortable with it, even though that, that was the goal. And so <laughs> this is a long story, but my friend um, who I asked, well, you know, if his goal was to make money, what was the greatest, bottleneck what was the greatest limitation that prevented that and i was stunned when he said weeds because we don't have any weeds and i was like really weeds? that's the biggest thing that's holds you back from making making uh the farm work financially and it was so we we talked about how you might address that and that's a interesting topic but um back to your question we don't really have many weeds and you got to remember that we're bringing compost which is most of the weed seed has been just you know destroyed, rendered not viable in the composting process. And we're adding it fairly regularly. So we're sort of mulching with compost, you might say. We, we bring in and just put a very light dressing, but uh, we just don't, because compost is what's on the surface, we're not tilling. We're not bringing up old weed seed. We're just, we're just adding a mulch of compost. Uh, and the compost itself is pretty weed-free. We don't have any weeds, a couple here and there. We just pick them and they're nothing. Well, that's easy. Yeah. <laughs> that's not, that's not our bottleneck, you know? So when you ask, well, what is the, once you figure out the goal, then you figure out what is the single greatest limitation to reaching that goal. And that really helps you to focus your thinking and, and to think about, well, what are my problems? And I have seen for us on the farm, our bottleneck has sort of gone back and forth between production and marketing. But many years, 
the bottleneck is not how to grow tomatoes, but how to sell all the tomatoes we grow at uh, a price that we consider sustainable. And so that's taken a lot of our attention. And I think that's, you know, that's going to be true for many farmers, if not most farmers, although for some absolutely, or in some times and places, production is the bottleneck. But lots of times, you know, things grow and there they are. There's all this food, but can you sell it? And, and that's a major challenge. But if that is the challenge, then that should be the task you take on. That, that would be using the, the book, the goal as a, a blueprint for helping you to focus your attention. So for example, when I, when I was first farming, uh, I hadn't read the goal yet. <laughs> and, but I was thinking, well, how do we make a living? And I always came down to reducing expenses. That was always my answer. We need to figure out how to do it cheaper. And so when you look at your expenses and you go, well, I can't really do anything about insurance. I can't really do anything about taxes on the land. I can't really do anything about the seed costs. So the only thing that it seems that I can really do much about is my labor expense. And so that became my obsession. How do we, how do we become more efficient with our labor? And, you know, that's good. We should, we should try to be as efficient as we can be. But when I started to think from Goldratt's point of view, and I thought, well, God, if I can reduce my labor by 10%, which is an enormous thing to reduce your labor by 10%, um, you know, and let's say, I don't know, let's say that your, your payroll is whatever, $100,000 a year. So you've saved $10,000. And, uh, and that's great. But then I looked at like the unsold vegetables rotting in the field <laughs> and the things I threw away from the farm stand every day. And that was a lot more than 10%. I mean, you know, that, that was a lot more than $10,000 of stuff that I already grown and a lot of it I'd already harvested. And so my questions started to become very different. And I think much more uh, relevant to that particular goal of how does a farm thrive financially. I would add that that I've decided since then that um, that's never enough of an answer of setting the goal as having the farm thrive financially. I, I, I take it as a given that that we're going to say that we're not going to do bad things. Um, sort of Google's motto, don't be evil. So um, if we use a lot of, if we, if we use a lot of energy, how do we dramatically reduce that? I take as a given. If we pay people wages where they can't live, I take it as a given that we're going to try and figure out how to get to a livable wage. Um, if we're growing using pesticides, I take it as a given that we're going to try and uh, reduce the pesticides, and I would hope even become organic. And even if you're organic, some organic people are using pesticides. How to take that down to nothing? That these are just. Of course, we want to do that, but there's a little more complicated than that, and that is that I don't think that that <laughs> I don't think people are. I don't think I'm just one person. I think I have many parts. This is getting. Uh, that's not metaphysical. I think it's very real. I think that we all have different parts, lots of them. And I, so I think a part of me wants to figure out how to make a living. But I also think there's another part of me that wants to uh, be proud of my farm 
and another part that wants to feel like the farm couldn't survive without my important contributions and you know another part that wants people to like me and the the thing is all these parts have different goals so and this was back to my friend who said weeds we had a long discussion about it. I said, well, what if you hired somebody for $50,000 a year and you said your, your mission is to eliminate weeds as an issue on this farm. And uh, you made them the weed czar and they could have the existing resources in terms of labor that are spent on weeding, but no more, but they could have all their own labor. I said, do you think that, that they could, Eliminate weeds is a problem. And he said, yeah, I actually think they could. And I said, and how much do you lose to weeds in a year? And he figured he lost about $80,000, $90,000 a year in, to weeds and lost, lost sales. So I said, so, okay, so if you do this and you think it'll work, you just made thirty dollars or $40,000 profit. Right. But I, I didn't think he would do it, and he didn't do it. and. And the question is, why didn't he do it? Well, part of it is because he likes to go out and run the cultivating tractor and be in charge of that. That's what he likes about farming. And I said to him, yeah, but that's your hobby. You know, that's fine. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, that you don't love it or you shouldn't do it whenever you can. The trouble is when you're counting on you to do it and you don't get to it, then it becomes a really expensive problem. So... You know, if, if you have a Sunday, then you have some time, go out and cultivate. But don't expect you to be the guy who's going to do it. Let your weeds are be on that problem. So anyway, that's just a, a, a kind of a fairly accessible example of, and maybe I'm crazy here. Maybe, I, you know, maybe other people don't feel this way. But I think that I have parts that have goals and they, they are in conflict with each other. And I need to understand that. I do a lot better to have those parts talking than, than to ignore them. And then they, they sabotage whatever it is I'm trying to do. I think there's a lot to that really specific example that you just gave about, about weed control where, where your friend said, well, that's my job. I like to do that. I want to be the one on the cultivating tractor and, and that that holds you back. And I've, I've seen that happen on farms. Um, I've seen that happen on farms that I've worked for. I've seen it happen on my own farm. Um, right, I kind of hate right. to admit it. Where, where for you does that, does that tension come in? Because you've got, you know, two and a half acres of greenhouses. I mean, you're clearly not the guy who's out there doing all of the planting, pruning, grafting, harvesting, all of the other things that need to be done. Where's the part for you where you want to be in there and doing something where you're holding on too tightly and not being willing to let go because of your ego or because of your desires? Yeah, I'd say I'm actually relatively good at, at letting go in terms of that, at delegating. Um, I didn't used to be. So, yeah, there were a lot of things I kept for myself. And um, I, you see it all the time, I and mean, we all do it. All the farmers I know are really overworked, and it's difficult to make a living. But I, it, it, that very thing of being overworked is part of what makes it difficult to make a living. It, it seems counterintuitive that if you just didn't work so hard and it, it's not about kicking back and going to the beach, although that is probably an important part, you know, that you do do kick back some and do something else now and again, but it's not ignoring the work. It's, it's 
So I have, I've, I've had, I had a Dutch consultant for many years helping me with climate control in the greenhouse. And, um, he would, he would say, you know, David, you know, you haven't, you know, this hasn't been done. And he'd, he'd, he would be uh, sort of judgmental. And I'd say, Servas, I, I, I'm working too many hours. I'm working as hard as I can. And uh, he said, I, I didn't ask you to do it. I asked you to make sure it got done. And I said, okay, good point. You know, I have, you know, chosen to delegate a lot of stuff. So we have, that's why I have time to talk to you right now. Um, we have managers on the farm who have things they're responsible for and they're good and they do a good job. So, um, if I got hit by a truck tomorrow, it would take a while for the farm to really miss me. People know enough to fill in the things I do and I know enough to fill in the things they do. I think that's very important for things to work well, not to have one person be absolutely critical to everything succeeding. Cause if, I mean, life changes, we, we all get old and get sick and die <laughs> free of the, uh, five Buddhist remembrances, right? That's true for everybody. So if you're trying to build a, a, a farm ecosystem that is going to uh, thrive regardless of the outcome for one person or another, then you need to be able to share responsibilities and, and critical responsibilities. Uh, who knows what would happen if I got hit by that truck tomorrow? Probably we would discover I was good for something, but uh, I don't think that the farm would would uh, stumble in the short run. You said you've got managers who are responsible for various aspects of the farm. How have you divided that up in your operation? Well, it it that's a moving target <laughs> because it sort of depends on who we have as a manager. Um, we had we had somebody who did all of our marketing and sales. For years and then he got sick and uh, was no longer able to work so we have somebody else now who does all of the sales calls which we have a lot we're a wholesale operation and we sell to a lot of stores but um, the marketing is sort of shared between three people so that's something where we talk a lot in the office and we Look at a lot of spreadsheets. We have them on uh, Google Docs so that we can all be working on the same sheet at three different computers. Uh, if you haven't gotten the idea, we're sort of, uh, I'm sort of uh, an obsessive person. <laughs> and uh, looking at the numbers is one of the things that is important for me to do in order for the farm to succeed is to see, well, where things at. And I think that's just beyond a certain scale. That's just necessary. It's just, it's a foundational management skill is to be able to have some control of the numbers to see what's happening. And not all those numbers have dollar signs on them. You know, some of those numbers are about pounds or, or, you know, square feet or, or, uh, you know, how many white fly did we count this week on the test cards? And, 
you know, how many aphidia cervi did we count on our test plants and on and on. We count a lot of stuff. You know, how much did the plants grow this week and how long is the fifth leaf from the top and what's the stem diameter 10 inches from the top. And we, we average that out and then we compare it to last year and the year before and, and back for 12 years. Uh, so we're looking at a lot of data just to help us understand what's going on. Are we screwing up or are we, are we doing a good job? My old Dutch consultant said, you know, you can't see 20% difference in yield with your naked eye looking at a crop. But 20% difference in yield for us is humongous in terms of are we surviving or, or are we uh, failing as a business? So uh, we can't just walk around and go, I feel good. The crop is good. I do. I mean, I, I, I do walk around and it's a big deal to me whether the crop looks good. And if it doesn't, I'm really depressed and sad. But uh, in terms of are we, are we thriving as a business? Are we making a living? I need numbers to tell so I don't get an enormous surprise at the end of the year. It's probably one of the challenges, but also the real great things about growing just one crop. I mean, I think about my own farm, you know, we have 50 different crops. If, I mean, you know, if we have the bad year in tomatoes with 20% yield difference in tomatoes, you know, no big deal. Right. I mean, right, that's just, right, that's a little right. bit, but, but for you, it's, I mean, you've got this one thing that you do. Of course, that does also then give you the opportunity to go around and measure stem diameters 10 inches from the growing tip. Right. And if you had a hoop house, um, you know, with uh, one or 2,000 square feet of tomatoes, you wouldn't do all that stuff. You know, that'd be crazy uh, unless that's all you did. I mean, I know somebody and that's what they have is one or 2,000 square feet hoop house and that's what they do. So yeah, they ought to go and do that every week because um, that's their focus and it means it's a big difference to them whether they get that extra 20% yield. But if you've got a big mixed farm and tomatoes is a 20th of what you do and whether you get an extra 10% of that 20th, uh, it's probably not worth it. So yeah, that's right. And that's part of why we, my obsessive part, <laughs> liked getting down to uh, one crop that I tried to do really, really well. That's just sort of who I am. I mean, I, I really enjoyed running a mixed vegetable operation very much. Uh, I just didn't know how to do that in less than 70 hours a week. When I tried the first year that my son was a baby and we cut it down to 50 hours and we didn't do well financially that year. We, we did poorly. And I was like, well, that's not working. So what are we going to do? Am I going to just, you know, uh, Say well, see you guys tonight at dinner, and um, you know, please have it ready. Uh, you know, I, I I didn't know how to I didn't know how to balance those two things, those two needs, with the farm the way it was, and uh, I was perfectly happy working that many hours before I had a son. I love to work, but uh, it just it didn't work because I, I had a part that really wanted to also be a very engaged, active father. With uh, the time that that took, not I'm not I'm not saying you can't be a, a great a great parent and still be a full time 
70 hour a week farmer. Of course you can, but I could, I couldn't figure out how to do it in a way that I wanted to do it. I mean, what are some of the metrics that if you were talking to, well, if you're talking to me as a tomato grower, you said, you know, you know, Chris, you've got a 3000 square foot high tunnel. Um, here's what you can do better with your tomatoes. What would you tell most tomato growers about that? Well, the first thing I would tell them is that's the wrong question. <laughs> I would say, read the goal <laughs> and really think about it. Right. And maybe you shouldn't even be a tomato grower. That's my point. I didn't start as a tomato grower. That became my choice, but it's not the right choice for everybody by any means. So the first thing is I'd say, read the goal and really think about it. I, I've, I've read the book four or five times. I don't mean to sound like a, a zealot, but uh, it's, it's very thought provoking if you give it the time. Um, and those are, it seem like obvious questions, but they aren't obvious and we don't do them very much. So having said that, what are, what do I think are the important metrics if you're growing tomatoes? Well, that's, that's actually a complicated question. Uh, and it depends, are you talking a short season or a long season? But um, what we're looking at is, of course, we're looking at yield. That's easy. And looking at, are we selling our yield? Is it sellable? You know, what are we getting the quality we need for the marketplace? Are we getting the price we need in the marketplace? Um, do we have the relationships with customers that they stick with us when there's other tomatoes around? Uh, usually cheaper. Um, you know, there's a lot of, are the customers really happy? All the time, all those are really critical questions that you can grow a beautiful crop and then and then go out of business. So it is not enough to uh, be a good grower. It, you could get a job for somebody else who's going to do all that other stuff. But um, if it's your business, then you've got to address, I think, in order to to flourish, you need to address those other issues. But the question of. What is a successful tomato crop? What are the things that you measure to tell how you're doing? I would look at weekly yield. It doesn't mean anything for the first two or three years, but then you start to have a track record and you can go, oh boy, our, our yields are down. Why? Um, I would look at the growth of the plant and things like stem diameter tell you a lot. What, the, the goal is to keep the, the plant balanced. Um, my son, that, that, that baby who provoked uh, the change in the farm is now 27 and, uh, he's a track coach at Columbia. Um, and, uh, we talk about his, his job. He loves, he loves his job. He loves, uh, training athletes. And it's very interesting because it's very similar to, uh, being a grower of tomatoes that you're seeking uh, to have the athletes push themselves pretty hard, but not too hard. And if they overtrain, um, then their performance goes down and they're really prone to injury. And once they get injured for an elite athlete, that's sort of it. They probably will never really recover. So he's, really thinking all the time about 
how to keep the uh, athletes engaged so they want to train, but not overtrain. And for an elite athlete, overtraining is usually the issue because they want to train. They, they, they on their weekend they go lift weight, you know, just for fun. So this take that and look at the tomato crop and. We want the tomato plants to be vibrant. We want them to be growing. We want them to be transpiring. We want them to get the proper diet. So we got to make sure that nutritionally the soil is healthy and, and giving them what they need. And we also want to make sure that they're working hard so that they're transpiring. And that's a climate issue and a light issue. We'll include light as part of climate. So it's balancing light with temperature, with humidity, all those things. And uh, I guess some of the some of the feedback is just visual, and going, "Well, this plant doesn't look right," or uh, you know, the the tips of the leaves are turning brown, or the leaves don't have good color. Uh, some of it is how strong is the plant, so that's how thick is the stem. At the head, is it getting thicker or thinner? Is the plant moving in a generative mode or a vegetative mode? So, a, a, a lot of the the art of growing tomatoes is balancing vegetative and generative. And uh, and when you say generative, that's the fruit production, right? That's right. Okay, that's right. So, um, you know, when you see uh, so typically, for uh, most people, let's say, who are growing a spring crop in a hoop house, and they, they plant the plants in, I don't know, maybe uh, April or, or early May. Maybe they have a little heat in that house to, to keep, you know, make sure that they don't get frosted out. And what's going to happen, and let's say that they've got good fertile soil and all that, they plant those plants and the plants are going to explode and they're going to get really thick stems really strong thick stems large diameter and um that's a plant that's in a vegetative mode and if you're not careful it becomes like a bodybuilder on steroids and you know bodybuilders they look great but they have no sex drive <laughs> it's an interesting <laughs> thing right and that's that's the result of the steroids and um, so it's all this false advertising. So the same thing's true with the tomato plant. They, they move, uh, in a, in a generative, in a vegetative mode and they have less interest in forming big, beautiful tomatoes. And they start to put more of their energy into growing the plant than into forming the fruit. And so if you get a really strong plant like that, it's, it's, can be common that the first truss is not really well filled out and not nice big round tomatoes. And in fact, if it gets too generative after a while, it barely wants to set flowers, set fruit at all. On the other extreme, if the plant gets really thin, which would be uh, unlikely, let's see, what would make a, so if you were growing a, a tunnel crop, like I said, and you held the plants too long in the pots, Right. before you transplant it into the ground. And let's say that the second truss was setting. The first truss was set. And the second truss 
was already, you could see some fruit there and it's, it's May 1st and high sun and high temperatures, certainly in the tunnel house. And you plant those, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to be weak for a long time um, and never quite get caught up. And that's because the plant is putting all its energy into forming those fruit and filling those fruit instead of putting energy into growing roots. Because that's part of what the plant needs energy for is, is to is to grow more roots. And so I have seen plants like that that just never quite recovered. Um, and the, the balance was off. They were too generative. So we're looking for that balance between vegetative and generative where you've got a you got a racehorse, you've got an elite athlete, and they're going along and you've got to give them the right amount of water and you've got to give them, make sure that they have good nutrition, just as you would with a human athlete. You can't let them be dehydrated and you can't let them be eating Twinkies all day. They can't, they can't perform on Twinkies. And so what do you do to, to steer that plant? I mean, if you've got a plant that's overly vegetative or overly generative, how do you get it going in the other direction? Temperature. You, you mostly can't control light unless you have some artificial lights, but mostly, you know, most people are just going to have, you, you know, what the goddess gives them. So you, if you can't, you can reduce light with shade, So you can pull some shade cloth or something or put whitewash on your, on your house. And that's one way of pushing them in a little more generative direction. Uh, raised temperature will push them in a generative direction. But you can't go too high or you're going to get into other problems. Taking off leaves would push them in a generative direction. So you would maybe prune leaves off the bottom more aggressively or even out of the middle of the plant or even out of the head of the plant in order to uh, try and balance the leaf load with the fruit load. So that, those are ways to do that. Uh, on the other hand, if you were trying to get a plant stronger, you'd let it have all its leaves. You might even let it have two leaves on its suckers before you pinch, pinch them off. Just to get it going the other way is to, uh, let's say we're going, uh, you could take some fruit off to make it uh, more. If you have a really weak plant, it's just pathetic, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and you go, oh, this poor plant. Well, take, take the fruit off it. Take a load off and let it, let it, put its roots out and grow and get some strength to it. And you've talked a lot about marketing. And I, I know from experience that marketing organic greenhouse tomatoes is kind of a challenge because it's, it does feel like a contradiction in terms to a lot of people. You say greenhouse tomatoes, they're, they think hydroponics and they think something that's tasteless and insipid, but you, but you're really trying to sell something else. You know, you're, you're trying to sell a soil grown tomato out of the greenhouse. How, how do you guys get across that bridge, especially in a wholesale setting. I mean, you're not standing there at farmer's market telling everybody how great your tomatoes taste. Right. Well, our tomatoes do taste great. So that makes it all a lot easier. It's much easier to sell the truth. And, you know, we've had uh, a, a number of big produce buyers write us to say, these are like the tomatoes my grandmother grew, you know, and I mean, it's fascinating, but in, in a sense, there's so little competition uh, on the wholesale market. 
there's there's plenty of competition in farmers market or the farm stand or CSAs. There's lots of people in those arenas have good tasting tomatoes. The hydroponic producers who are now flooding the uh, certified organic market have essentially wiped out all of our good competition. Uh, all the soil grown tomatoes are gone from the wholesale market. They're still out there, of course, at CSAs and farm stands and farmers markets, but very few show up now in a supermarket, which is where we sell our tomatoes. So the comparison between our tomatoes and hydroponic tomatoes is so night and day, even though they're beautiful, they look great. And uh, the stores like them because they're, their 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 supply is regular all those good things but their taste is not and that's pretty obvious to people um so actually we've had a couple chains leave us and come back because <laughs> people aren't very happy with the with the hydro tomatoes unfortunately uh it still is very hard for a young producer coming up and saying i'm going to i'm going to expand i'm going to build half an acre of uh greenhouse for tomatoes and sell them to a supermarket chain, that's, that's a hard sell because now you're going up against really inexpensive pseudo foganic uh, hydroponic tomatoes. And so for us, we're very established in the market. The stores all know us, they trust us, they like us. And uh, it, it, we, we had one big customer who went away because they said, we're going Mexican. But uh, we've had other customers come in, come back to us in a big way because we're not Mexican hydroponic. And, uh, and everybody gets that there's a difference. They're starting to get that there's a difference. Maybe if it gets strong enough, then there will be a market again for real soil grown organic. But right now, that's a tough thing for a new person to come in with. You talk about soil grown organics. Is is that something that you actually see uh, your stores presenting to the retail buyer? No, no, the stores don't want to mention it. Um, this is a dark secret um, that the other tomatoes are not soil grown. Nobody, nobody's talking about that in the marketplace, and the stores don't want to talk about it. Not because they're evil, just because that's what they're selling. And they don't want to make that distinction. You know, if you get outside of Massachusetts and some places in Connecticut and Pennsylvania, there almost aren't any soil grown tomatoes left that are organic. So if you're a store and all you have is hydroponic, you don't want to talk about that. The customers certainly don't know about it. They don't realize. I talked to somebody uh, out in California and she was very involved in this in this debate on a national level. And she was one of the forces behind um, the moratorium letter that, that was put out that everybody signed, every organization that didn't have a, uh, wasn't making money off hydro, signed a letter saying we need a moratorium on this certification of hydroponics until this gets worked out on the regulatory level. And she had really been instrumental in helping that uh, take place. And she didn't realize she was buying hydroponic tomatoes in the store because she shops in, in, you know, Berkeley, California. And uh, it's such a wonderful hip place that uh, how would a hydroponic tomato get there? But that is what's in the, all the chains in California as well. And uh, 
only if it's truly locally sourced might it be soil grown. And most of what chains carry is not locally sourced. So she said, I noticed the tomatoes haven't been tasting good for the last year or two. I said, well, yeah, that's because that's because they're hydroponic. And she was like, oh, my God, I didn't know that. So nobody knows that this is happening. Now some farmers are finding out. Now some consumers are starting to learn about it. But I would guess that less than 5% of consumers have any awareness that this is happening, that, that the tomatoes, the berries, the peppers, the cucumbers, the basil, and now the lettuce, that these are all hydroponic. Uh, not all, but probably at least uh, a third of all of those, except for the tomatoes. And for tomatoes, it's got to be more like four-fifths. With that, we're going to take a break, get a quick word from a couple of sponsors, and then we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about this issue of hydroponics in organics and, and frankly, what you might be able to do about it. So we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Dave Chapman from Longwind Farm in East Thetford, Vermont. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is supported by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management. Farmer's Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online, but also those that order by phone or email. Use Farmer's Web to generate a product catalog for buyers, allow buyers to view your real-time availability online, and create harvest lists and packing slips for your orders. Farmer's Web helps you inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and more, while helping you keep track of special pricing and customer information. You can also download detailed financial reports. Farmer's Web offers a free account type and a flat monthly fee on paid plans. You can pause, cancel, or switch plan types at any time. Check out a demo video and the Farmer's Web guide to working with wholesale buyers at farmersweb.com. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers. And with PTO-driven attachments like rototillers, flail mowers, rotary plows, power harrows, log splitters, snow throwers, even a utility trailer and a new water transfer pump, you've got the tools you need to get jobs done across the farm and the homestead. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions for mowing and tilling before we finally got smart and bought a BCS. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, that BCS tackled jobs that we simply couldn't do with a larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working in our high tunnels. Plus, they're gear-driven for years of dependable service. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. And we're back with Dave Chapman from Longwind Farm in East Thetford, Vermont. Dave, we're talking about this, this issue of, of hydroponics and organics. And, and uh, I know I've seen some, some things saying like there's a, you know, the final NOSB meeting. And tell me more about what's, what's going on with this. What's this all about? You know, the, the issue of whether or not hydroponics can be certified as organic has been kicking around for a bit. Back in 2010, the NOSB, that's the National Organic Standards Board, and that's the group that's meant to represent us uh, to the National Organic Program and give them advice on issues uh, about what should or shouldn't be called organic. Back in 2010, the advisory board 
very conclusively said hydroponic should not be called organic because it's not based on a uh, fertile soil production system. And organic has always been about about uh, healthy soil. That's that's what it that's what its meaning is. So they put in that recommendation and it was ignored. And since then, at, at that time, there was very little hydroponic production being certified, very little. But since then, it's become a tidal wave. And large-scale hydroponic producers have discovered that they can get in through this back door. And um, uh, the, biggest, the biggest hydro uh, organic producer in the world is Driscoll Berries. And they got over 1,000 acres of berries that are being grown hydroponically and certified as organic. Um, second biggest is Wholesome Harvest. And uh, they sell, I think they said in their testimony, about $52 million a year of uh, product. And the majority, vast majority of that is, is the hydroponic tomatoes. Um, in testimony in front of the NOSB last year, Oh, it wasn't a testimony. Maybe it was an article. Uh, the hydro lobby said that their sales, their retail sales, reached a billion dollars in 2016. So they might have been stretching it. <laughs> you know, that sounds a little ambitious, but certainly hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, so this is not a small, unimportant issue. If it was just, you know, a couple small greenhouses selling some some hydro or some aquaponic, frankly, who cares? But instead, it's going to become the defining way that so-called organic tomatoes and soon cucumbers, peppers, lettuce, and berries, certainly basil, are, are grown. That's what, if you go to a store, if you go to a supermarket and you buy something that's organic in that, in that class, Nine times out of ten, it's going to be hydroponic. And this is coming. Uh, I have friends in the hydroponic world, and I've known them because I've shared consultants for years. We, they, they think that I'm a dirt-worshipping heathen, and I think that they're you know, missing the point of some important stuff, but we're friends. And um, one of them said to me, Dave, this is coming really, really fast, and it's going to be really, really big. And, and this guy runs 75 acres of hydroponic peppers, so he's pretty well informed about what's happening in the industry. People who are, are trying to support this are people like miracle Grow and these large conventional greenhouse operations. One is 1,200 acres of conventional hydroponic uh, greenhouse tomatoes and they're all planning to go organic and it ain't going to be organic. It's, it's, it's going to be hydroponic. So we're just in this strange thing where the, uh, natural organic program and the organic community are about to part ways. I think that, uh, we're seeing the natural organic program imploding here and it's not, this is not the only issue they're imploding on. Uh, the, the issue of confinement, uh, animal feeding operations, CAFOs is just as big. It's also mostly unrecognized by the consumer. And once again, it is completely not what they intend to be buying. 
when they go in and pay extra for that quart of milk or that container of yogurt. They're they're being cheated. They're being this is fraud. Um, and I'm involved in a big fight to try and end the fraud and to try and bring back the standards to uh, be in alignment with the traditional beliefs of organic farming. But but you say I mean you say fraud, but still these these crops are being grown without pesticides. They're being grown without fungicides or without, I should say, without chemical pesticides, without chemical fungicides. Yes. So, I mean, that would seem to be, and, and being grown with organic fertilizers. I mean, that all seems like an improvement over the conventional agricultural system. So, I mean, why not look at this and say, we're, this is better than the alternative. It, it, it is better. I think it is an improvement. It's certainly they certainly do use pesticides. They just use organic pesticides, but they use lots of them. Um, they do use organically permitted fertilizers, but they're highly processed. You know, it's not easy. <laughs> to, as anybody who's ever tried to use organic liquid feeds knows, it's not easy just to, just to support a plant in a pot, never mind to have a, a tomato plant that's going to produce a gazillion kilos of tomatoes, uh, only getting liquid feed. Um, so the, the nitrogen source, just for example, as far as we can tell, because they won't tell us, even I was on the USDA task force that studied this, 10 people on that task force were there to represent hydro. None of them would tell us what they fertilize with. They just refused to answer. They said it's something on the OMRI list, you know, and, um, but for example, there's hydrolyzed soy protein, which is 1800, hot enough to burn the roots right off your plant. Um, very plant available, doesn't really require any kind of microbial intermediation in order for the plant to take it up. So yes, it's been permitted. Omri said we can't help it because it's not synthetic. It's, it's done through enzymes. It's a process that in some factory where they treat it. But it has very little to do with what Albert Howard was talking about. It has very little to do with what real organic is about. Real organic was intended as an alternative to the booming agricultural revolution that has come to be called conventional agriculture. And that, revol you know, that agricultural revolution at that time was based on figuring out how to make nitrogen in a, in a factory and uh, make other fertilizers, uh, superphosphate and whatnot, very available to plants. So it didn't require the kind of intermediation that uh, an organic producer looks to. You know, if, if you're an organic grower, you're not using superphosphate. You're looking to mycorrhizal fungi to make that uh, available to the plant. And which it does very well. And in exchange, that fungi gets energy from the plant through, the, through photosynthase. The plant takes and gives maybe a third of the photosynthetic products that it makes and feeds it to the fungi and the bacteria right around the, the root. It exudes it out. And it takes the other half to two-thirds and... Uh, builds itself with it and grows more roots and makes fruit and makes leaves. 
but it's giving up a lot of its energy in this exchange in order to get proper nutrition. And it's my belief and many people's belief that that's the only way a plant can get proper nutrition. It can certainly get the things it needs to grow big and green out of a bag. And um, we know that conventional agriculture works. The yields go up for a while and they need to use more pesticides and you know, they're using uh, fungicides and herbicides to get more disease problems. All these things are happening, but they're, they're, they're striving for that high yield and for a simple system. And so the, the, the slogan of organic agriculture was feed the soil, not the plant. So if we can feed the life in the soil, it will provide the kind of nutrition that, that the plant will be truly healthy and the animals eating that plant will be truly healthy and the people eating the plant and the animals will be truly healthy. And that's the idea of organic farming. I mean, that's it. And conventional farming is like feed the plant. We know better. We know what they need. We can make it in our lab. We can then produce it in a factory. You can buy it in a bag and you can put it out. And I think it's a matter of belief. There's plenty of science to support what I'm saying, but I'm sure they got some scientist somewhere who says, no, no, this is good. So we get down to what do people want? And I would say people, it's fraud because people are being misled. And um, not everybody who chooses to buy organic cares about the things I'm saying. They all care about health, but they don't necessarily know that much about soil science. They don't necessarily know that much about nutrition. And so they're counting on us to say, we've studied this a lot and this is what we believe. And that, that's why people are buying organic and they're being misled when they go and get that carton of milk and they see the nice picture of the cow eating on a grass on a pasture on the cover. They think that's what they're getting. They don't think that they're getting a cow that has spent its entire life in a feedlot. And likewise, they get that nice pint of berries and it's got a picture of these beautiful fields and with mountains behind it. It looks like Elliot Coleman's place. But if you actually see a picture or better yet, go to where they're growing and see a thousand acres in pots sitting on black uh, weed fabric and all the feed is coming in through a drip tube. That's not what they mean by organic. And it's, it's, a, it's going to destroy the label. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a while. But after, you know, 10 years of this, 15 years, organic is just going to be natural. And it's going to mean about the same. I, I suppose I, I always think back. I was, on a, I was on an organic chicken farm in 1999. And I was like, you know, the, these birds were being raised in, in, in these houses that were, they were horrible. You know, you mean they were, yes. but they were organic. And, and I look at that and I go, well, here we are, you know, 18 years later, I mean, you know, we still have an organic label. People still believe in it. People are still willing to pay more for it. It's like, I don't know. I mean, at what, at, at what point do we just go like, okay, you know, we need a better alternative than, than, um, you know, than, than refining the nitrogen out of the air with natural gas and go. Yeah, you know, I'd rather have it come from soybeans. I mean, so so what? <laughs> I, I mean, well, and I want to say, I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a believer. I'm with you on what you say, but I also go like I go like 
you know, really, is, is the consumer actually ever going to wake up to this issue? And if they do, are they actually going to care? Yes. There are a number of consumers who are waking up and they do care and they're upset about it. And they're, they're turning away from the organic label and they're turning to local. We all know this. They don't trust the organic seal anymore. They go, well, maybe, maybe it's organic, but I don't know. I don't trust the USDA to tell me the truth. And, the, and if you've seen the stories from the Washington Post in the last year, we know they're not getting it right. Whether they're doing it through ill intent or just ignorance, uh, absolutely, the seal is not to be trusted. And it's not to say that there's not a lot of legitimate organic farmers getting certified. I would say the vast majority of certified farms are real but not necessarily the vast majority of certified organic food sold in the U.S. I, Miles McAvoy, our recently departed or soon to be departed director of the National Organic Program, told me that if the new animal welfare reform standards were implemented, three quarters, three quarters of the certified organic eggs would be decertified over the, the number of years they have for phasing them out. Now think about that. The animal welfare reform standards are pretty weak. They're not like these strong standards. They're pretty weak. They're just a little better than what we have. And everybody wanted them. Every, every organic group supported them. The National Organic Program supported them. And they finally even passed through the USDA. And then the first day that Trump came in, he pulled them for further study. But if these standards that everybody thinks are a bare minimum were implemented, three quarters of the organic eggs disappear from the organic egg market. And that's the whole problem here. That's fraud, in my opinion. They might be actually following maybe the standards, maybe, although I believe the standards say there must be outdoor access and they don't have outdoor access. They invented uh, wonderful screened porches, which are just... They took the walls off of some of the of the factories and said and put screens on them and said now they have outdoor access. Th this system is failing. It's failing people, and as they find out, because most people don't know that, they're going to be pissed and they're going to turn away. And it's good for the for the local movement because people are saying, "Know your farmer," which is right. It's always better. It's better to to buy local. Better to buy from people you know, and you can see how they did it. But there's lots of people who don't have access to a farmer. They don't know their farmer. They're going and they're buying in a store and there are no local alternatives. And what about them? And don't they deserve good food? And, and you're saying, well, we sort of lost this and it's slightly better than it used to be. Those, those big egg CAFOs, all you, you can say is, well, they feed organic grain. And as it turns out, <laughs> Washington Post had a pretty compelling story that a lot of that grain isn't organic. They just it just got falsely labeled on its way over here from Eastern Europe. So, yeah, I think it's fraud. I think that that there's a real problem here and the consumers ought to be pissed and the organic farmers ought to be even more pissed because they're taking something that we worked so hard to create for so long and they're just trashing it just for money. They're just saying, we can make money if we use this label. We, we're not interested in changing how we farm. 
We're interested in changing how we market. That is not the organic movement. That is not the intention of the National Organic Program. It was meant to protect against that. That's why it was formed. So, Dave, what to do? I mean, what, what's, what's the next action? What should people be walking away from this saying, I'm going to... Well, it's going to be tough. It is, because we're up against hundreds of millions of dollars. The first thing people can do is go to keep the soil in organic.org. And that's a website. If you go there, you can see that there are a number of uh, farmer eater rallies planned for this fall to protest uh, the inclusion of hydroponics and, and frankly, also to protest the inclusion of CAFOs. And those rallies are going to culminate with a rally in Jacksonville, Florida on October 31st. Uh, and a number of farmers are coming to that rally from all over the country um, to testify and to, to act up, to speak up and say, no, this isn't okay. And, you know, we have a lot of organic pioneers. Uh, Elliot Coleman's coming and Fred Kirshenman and Jeff Moyer and Jim Riddle, uh, Will Allen are coming uh, uh, to, to say that this is not okay. We're not going to be quiet. We're not going to go quietly. Another thing you can do on the website is sign a petition. And the third thing that you can do is to send in written testimony to the National Organic Standards Board. Nobody likes to do this, but there's a, when you come to the website, you just click here and follow the directions. And you just write a little note. They want your name and your email. Uh, and you just write a little note saying what you think. And, you know, if we could send in 100,000 notes, I think that they're going to go, oh, dear God, <laughs> this isn't going to work. It isn't going to work. That's the truth. People aren't going to accept it, but it's a whole lot better if we stand up and say that now. What's the timeline here? When, when do people need to be signing this petition or writing the letter to the NOSB? The letter to the NOSB needs to be in by October 11th. So you got five days. <laughs> you got five days. So it's important to do it right away. And that's what I was going to say. Even if you think you got five days, do it today. Just do it. Just do it. Just go to the website, click, and, and send them a little note. Just say what you think. If you're a farmer, say, I'm a farmer and I care about this. And we have farmers who aren't organic, who are marching with us in the rallies because they still think it's just crazy talk to call hydroponic organic. And they understand what good soil is about. They understand soil is the foundation of what they do. And sign the petition. That's another click at the top. You'll see sign petition and, and just go do that. And that w can be done right up until the meeting, uh, you know, so October 28th or something. I'll print that out and take it with me to the meeting. All right. So with that, we're going to turn to our lightning round, come back and do a little bit of fun stuff in just a moment after we get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round and perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. You know, most of us didn't get into this business to make the most money in the fastest possible time frame, and neither did Vermont Compost Company. And funny thing, this organic farming thing doesn't really work that way anyways. Organic farming works best when you use the discipline of business to guide your investments in the future. And that's what Vermont compost potting soils do. Without glitz, without glamour, but with the art and the science that creates an ideal living matrix where your transplants can thrive 
setting the stage for success throughout the year. And while it's not all about the money, Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost Fall Pre-Buy Program runs through December 21st, taking care of growers by taking care of transplant since 1992. VermontCompost.com. Dave, what's your favorite tool on the farm? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> well, to be honest, a computer. <laughs> what's your favorite crop to grow? I would say tomatoes. Do you have a garden? Do you grow anything other than tomatoes? No. I, I did a garden for a while after we, after we changed, but I found it too difficult with my son who liked to destroy everything. And I thought we could find other things more fun to do. So I started shopping at my old competitors and everybody was happy. <laughs> One of the things that I noticed that, that I'd, I'd hoped that we were going to get to earlier was that, that you do Tai Chi and you, you teach classes. And, and I just like to hear really quickly, like, how has that influenced you? Like, where does that intersect with your farm life? Well, uh, several places. It, for one thing, it's not the farm, and it's really nice to have something that I care about that isn't the farm. Um, as I say, I'm kind of a maniacal guy, so it's nice to have uh, a couple passions. And it's also a nice thing. It really brings a lot of people into my life, which is interesting. When I started Tai Chi, I loved it as a solitary activity. But as a teacher, I've come to really appreciate it as something that uh, a group of people do together. And so I'm in classes oh, four times a week. Um, and I like that. I get to see people and something I share with my wife and share with friends. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Well, I was going to say have fun, but I actually did have fun. And I was going to say don't take yourself too seriously, but I didn't. This is maybe all advice for me now from back then. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I've only gotten stupider. <laughs> Dave, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Good. Okay. Thank you. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 139 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking at the episodes page or just searching for long wind. That's L-O-N-G-W-I-N-D. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Rock Dust Local, the first company in North America specializing in local sourcing and delivery of the best rock dust and biochar for organic farming. And by CoolBot, allowing you to build an affordable walk-in cooler powered by a window air conditioning unit. Save $20 on your CoolBot when you visit farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash CoolBot. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. It really makes a difference. 
You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I'm working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.